Um, I wanted to thank you. Thank you, Lauren, and all of you. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. This has been an amazing study for me personally, because the book of Hebrews, as you are all catching on to the fact that it is steeped in theology, right? And it gives great hope. It gives great hope as the world around us is just in despair. It's in hopelessness and complete restlessness. I asked for that song this morning, um, Christ Our Hope in Life and Death. Ironically, I got to sing it with the Gettys on Sunday night. Was that awesome? How many were there? Oh, my goodness. That was fantastic, wasn't it? And we got to sing it with them. But I chose it today because of Psalm 42, verse 5. It says this, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Our only true hope, ladies, is the presence of God. And the presence of God is our true rest. And today we're going to discover the warnings that were given, the rest that was promised, and the word which accomplishes all of it. We all know by now, hopefully, that the central theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. Jesus is better. That's right. And we can see the excellencies of Jesus Christ in every single chapter in the book of Hebrews. And we've already learned that Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. And today, in chapter 4, we're going to see again that Jesus is better. He's better than Joshua, and he offers a better rest than Joshua ever could have. God created rest. And he made man, he created us to require rest in order to live, both physically and spiritually. Depriving people of rest has always been an effective tool of the enemy. In April 1942, in the midst of World War II, enemy forces gathered 78,000 American and Filipino Um, POWs, and they were sick. They were injured. They were starving. And over the course of 10 days, they marched them 65 miles in oppressive heat, bad conditions, to another POW camp. The prisoners could not drink. They could not eat. They couldn't sit or stop or rest in any way at all. If they did any of those things, even if they simply stumbled, they were executed on the spot. This march is called the Bataan Death March. It's infamously called that because it's estimated that over 10,000 captives died in that march. It's a very personal story. It's a personal March to me because my own Uncle Jimmy was a survivor of that march. My uncle's captors knew a truth. Without rest, people die. And this chapter, ladies, punctuates a truth that our enemy knows very well. Without God's rest, people die. 
And this is such an important message that the Holy Spirit gave multiple warnings regarding those things that keep us from God's rest. We've been warned against drifting in chapter 2. We have been warned against departing the faith in chapter 3. And we're going to learn today we're being warned against disobedience. And for the third time, the very the third time in just a few short verses we're warned Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The author uses the rebellious and the hard hearts of the wandering Israelites under the leadership of Joshua as our example. We know that the people of Israel desperately wanted rest. Because remember, they had just come out of over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. But Jeremiah 523 says this about these people. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They've turned aside and gone away. As a reminder, just so we can remind ourselves what we learned in the study of Genesis, there are unconditional covenants. If you remember the covenant that God made with Abraham um, when he promised land, seed, and blessing. Remember that? This was an everlasting covenant, and it depends only, only on God. But there are conditional covenants, and this was the covenant that was given to Moses, and it was dependent upon adherence to the law. God gave the conditions that they were expected to meet in Exodus 19.5 when he told Moses what was required of them in order to enter the land. He said, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Well, did the people heed God's word? No, they did not heed it. For the Israelites in the wilderness, the Hebrews, the first century, and every single one of us here today, the warning remains the same. Do you want true rest? Heed the warnings. But we know what steals our rest, don't we? It's the hectic pace of the lives we lead. It's trial. It's sorrow, sadness, persecution, the brokenness of sin, and the evil that is just flooding this world, all compounded by humanity's tireless and completely worthless efforts to be good. All of these things make us restless. St. Augustine said this, Thou movest us to delight in praising thee, for thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. There is a difference between experiencing rest and living a life of rest in this crazy and restless world. And this passage will encourage us to make every effort. It says to strive to enter God's rest. This requires belief, faith, and trust in God, and a striving to know his word in such a way that it powerfully changes our hearts and it gives us rest. It's in our hearts to want rest. Yet, in this fallen world, it is nowhere to be found. The world really tries, we know that, but it always comes up empty. 
For instance, this is what I found when Googling how to find rest. Here are the top six ways. Are you ready? Don't bother writing them down. (laughs) Number one, do something you enjoy. Maybe read a book. Number two, take some time in nature. Actually, I can kind of understand that one. But number three, take some time for yourself. Have some me time. Which is curiously followed by number four, make time for others. Number five, get up and get moving. And number six, set clear boundaries. Well, each one of these offers nothing. Nothing that will last for more than a moment, if it works at all. The world's best efforts don't offer rest. They simply, maybe, momentarily distract one from that which is making them restless. But then when they fail, which they always do... People turn to psychiatry, they turn to drugs, they turn to alcohol, addictions, and a list of other things which will also fail. Hebrews 4 points us to the better rest that is found only in Jesus Christ. And Hebrews is written to believers, and it has a very specific warning for both believers and unbelievers. So, for those of you who are here today, who believe God's promises, you know God's promises, and you believe them, yet you struggle to trust him in all the daily trials of this life, this is for you. And for those of you who may sit in those seats week after week after week, learning about God, but never repenting and never following him, this is for you. And for those of you who may be discouraged and you're on the verge of drifting or maybe turning away from Jesus and back to a way of life that's familiar to you, it was easier for you, this is for you. Corey Ten Boom, who was a woman well acquainted with a desire for rest, said this, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. If you look at God, you'll be at rest. God understands. He understands our need for rest because he created us to need it. So he tells us exactly where to find it. And it begins with this warning. Don't do what Israel did. Because just as God told Moses in Deuteronomy 10, he tells us, rest begins with the fear of the Lord. So open your Bibles to Hebrews 4, and I will read verses 1 through 3. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we have believed, enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Starts with a therefore. Now, for my grammar-loving friends out there, therefore is a conjunctive adverb, and it's referring back to chapter 3. Specifically, verse 12, it says, as long as it's called today, 
See to it that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But we do know how those people responded, those Israelites. They were unable to enter because of disbelief. Remember, this was a conditional promise to those Israelites. And those in that generation did not meet the conditions. Scripture repeatedly tells us the reason they could not enter the land. It was their unbelief and it was their disobedience. We see that in this chapter. We see it in Numbers 14 and in Joshua 5. Let me ask you this, because I know some of you were thinking this. How is unbelief disobedience? Well, the very act of disobedience proves, it proves that you don't believe. You don't believe that God is who he says he is, and you do not believe that he will do exactly what he says he will do. Unbelief is disobedience. And this disobedience kept that generation of Israelites out of the land of Canaan, the promised land, the place of rest. It was set aside by God for his people. It was a place where they could have had rest from their enemies and from their bondage and where they could freely worship God. I think it's interesting right now. It's obvious, isn't it, that the land of Israel is still awaiting rest from their enemies. Canaan is the land that was chosen by God to represent the full eternal rest that will eventually be found in heaven. And he chose Joshua to lead the people into this land. He, Joshua, is a type or a shadow of Jesus who leads his people into true rest. And God gave Joshua this reminder in Joshua 1.13. He said, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. God spoke through Moses, who was a great prophet. He spoke through Joshua. These guys were the best that there were. They spoke for God to the people of Israel. But ladies, we have better because God speaks to us through the word through his own son, Jesus Christ. We have the new covenant, which is unconditional because it's based upon Jesus's perfect adherence to the law. But even today, people can be just like those Israelites, hearing but never mixing what they hear with faith. I was recently on a little trip with some family members. And every single morning, I would get up and watch one of them open a packet full of powder, I presume was full of vitamins and lots and lots of healthy things. And they would open it up and pour it into a tall glass of water, stir it up, mix it together, and drink it for breakfast. Well, we know that the powder without the water, it's not going to be helpful at all. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And the water without the powder is just water. It isn't a healthy drink until you mix them together. And then once you mix them together, they can't be unmixed. They become united in a way that can never be undone. And many of the Israelites 
never mixed what they knew about God and what they knew God had done for them with belief in the God who did it all. Instead, some of them were mixing their knowledge of God with their own works rather than God's work on their behalf. The warning is that we cannot mix God with works, but only with faith in the work of Christ alone. Those rebellious wanderers, they were worried. They were worried about life in the wilderness, and they did not trust God. The Hebrew audience was also worried, and they were stressed out in their lives because they also were not trusting God. Now, we have to keep in mind, this was written around 67 to 69 AD. This is a time when persecution was very severe for Christians. Nero was in power at the time. He was a ruler known for erratic, extravagant, and extremely cruel behavior. And he was, I think he died around 69 AD. So he was alive when this was being written. The ones to whom this was written had already given up much to follow Christ. And now this new religion was causing them grief. They were definitely not experiencing rest. Their behavior paralleled the Israelites who wanted to go back to slavery in Egypt because some of these people were considering going back to Judaism and slavery to the law. And the author warns them against this. He says, let us fear. And he includes himself in that. And he includes all of us in this room today. We are to fear. But what exactly are we supposed to fear? Because there are fears that Christians should cultivate. And there are fears that Christians should eliminate. We're not to be afraid. For instance, Isaiah 41.10 says, fear not for I am with you. And 2 Timothy 1, 7 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. But we are to fear the same thing that God told Moses to fear. We're to fear God. Proverbs 14, 26 confirms this when it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. This is the kind of fear that grows in the heart of one who has been set free from the bondage of sin, and she understands the sacrifice of God and his son that was required to save her. This is a fear of disappointing the one who set her free. This fear is about his worthiness and her obedience. This fear understands she owes it all to the Lord, and this fear deeply, deeply respects the object of the fear. It should keep us trusting him when life gets tough. This awe of God and this fear of his holiness should never, ever leave one who's been saved by Jesus's work. But it does, doesn't it? It does all the time. So God, in his great mercy and through his Holy Spirit, warns us. He says this fear and reverence for our Lord should keep us from drifting back to our old way of life. The Israelites in the wilderness should have had this fear of God because they had experienced a lot with God, but they knew all about God, but they lacked faith. They had 
the knowledge. But Hebrews 4, 6 tells us that they fell short of belief. They didn't mix what they knew with faith in the one who did it all. And God says this is disobedience. Ladies, that may describe some that are here today. Some of you may sit week after week in that sanctuary across this campus and drink in God's word from some of the best Bible teachers who are alive today. You know all about God, yet you lack faith. You do not believe. Ladies, this is disobedience. We should all, all of us cultivate a fear that we too might fall short. Because the same promise of entering God's rest remains for you. If you failed to reach the spiritual rest that God offers, his promise still stands. Today is the day, and it's not too late. And this is really, really good news. The good news to the Old Testament believers was the divine rest that would come through the future seed of Abraham, through whom the whole world would be blessed. Remember that? They believed what was before them in faith. The good news to the New Testament believers, that's us, is the gospel, which actually means good news. And that's that the divine rest comes through the finished work of the promised Christ. And we, we also believe, we believe that which was accomplished by faith. Again, the author refers Back to Psalm 95, which he's done several times now, which the Hebrews, the Hebrew believers in that time, they would have been very, very familiar with this psalm. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day in Massah in the wilderness. It's important to note that Meribah means strife, controversy embittered. Massah means trial. So God had brought the people out of slavery in Egypt, but when they found themselves in a place of trial or of testing, they became embittered. There was strife in their hearts and they grumbled against God. They stirred up controversy and they fought with one another. We learn from the Israelites that a change in location or circumstance cannot give rest. These wilderness wanderers encountered some what I call rest stops, things that stopped their rest. They worried about water. They worried about the meat they would eat. They worried about their enemies. They complained about their living conditions. They wanted a different leader. They had no gratitude, and they fought with one another. It says God was disgusted with them for this. And their hearts went astray from him. That generation did not enter his rest. But that should be making us ask ourselves, what are our rest stops? What is it that stops or steals our rest? Because we worry too, don't we? We worry about our finances. We worry about our hectic schedules and how to fit it all in. We worry about where to send the kids to school We worry about relationships. We fret over the state of this world. We too complain about our living conditions. We also complain about our leaders. 
We lack a thankful heart and we worry about our health and the health of someone we love. We can also take on a legalistic attitude and worry that we're just not doing enough to please God. We forget, ladies, about what we know about God and we focus instead on what we see and what we feel. And it's then that our trust in God begins to fray. It was so very, very wise of God to use the Israelites as our warning because we can be just like them. When we're looking through a worldly lens instead of a biblical lens, we can stop believing God and we can stop trusting him. This is disobedience and it can lead to a heart that is not soft towards God, but it can become calloused and hardened. People should strive. Strive to enter God's rest in faith and continue striving to remain in God's rest by trusting him. Don't be like the Israelites. Don't fall into these rest stops, ladies, because those who do not believe will forfeit God's rest. We're talking a lot about rest, but what exactly is rest? There are some things we need to understand. Um, In the purest sense, rest means just ceasing from work. The Puritan John Owen gives five elements of rest. Rest means peace with God. Rest means freedom from the bondage of serving God by compulsion. Rest means deliverance from working in an attempt to please God. Rest means the freedom of worship according to the gospel. And rest means the rest that God himself enjoys. In Psalm 95.11, God says that this is his rest. And this is really key because rest belongs to God. It belongs to God and it is his rest. And when we come to faith in Christ, guess what? God shares his personal rest with those who trust him. Did you get that? He shares. He shares his holiness. He shares his kingdom. He shares himself with those whom he chooses to share with. Rest is from God. It is about God. And it is God. And this is what he is offering us. This is what we should be striving for. It's God himself. John MacArthur classifies God's rest in three different ways. Each one builds upon the next. The first one is spiritual rest, and this is our current rest, and this is for our very souls. The second one is kingdom rest. That's the millennial kingdom, which is future to us, and it is a physical kingdom where Jesus will reside with us as king for 1,000 years. The final one is our eternal rest. This is heaven. This is the eternal kingdom of God. This is the fullest kind of relationship that one can ever have with God. It begins with spiritual rest. It will grow into kingdom rest, and it will find its greatest fulfillment for all of eternity in heaven with the Father and the fullness of his trinity. I really liked this quote from Matthew Henry's view of spiritual rest. He says, here, it's as a grace. Later, It's as a glory. Rest is a crucial, crucial part of being a believer. But we know 
rest was lost, right? So grab your Bibles. We're going to backtrack a little bit back to Genesis 1 and 2 to understand how profound this rest is. Because frankly, this is where Hebrews went and it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we're going there too. Genesis 1, it says that God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them in six literal days. And he repeats every single time. And there was evening and there was morning the first day in verse 5. The second day, he repeats it in verse 8. The third day in verse 13. The fourth day in verse 19. The fifth day in verse 23. The sixth day in verse 31. There was day, there was evening, and there was morning. And then what did God declare about his creation? It was very good. But now, look at Genesis 2, verse 2. There's something different about this day. It says all of God's work was finished, so he blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Did you notice? There is no mention of evening and morning on that day. Why do you think that is? This is a very, very specific rest. It is not temporal. It's perfect. It's very good, and it's eternal. It's God's rest. In fact, the eternality of God's rest is a vital component to our spiritual rest. This eternality is an important element of rest that the world simply will never, ever offer. This is why I, I don't know if some of you may have too, on that last day of summer, the night before school started, I would get so sad as a kid. Or maybe on the last night of a really wonderful vacation, you get kind of depressed, right? Because worldly rest always ends. There's an ending to it. But to understand the kind of rest that every human soul longs for, we have to look for a minute at God's creation before the fall. Because there was life. There was a garden. And there, it was... Everything was beautiful and everything was pleasant there. There was food, there was water flowing, and life was very good. It was purposeful and it was relational. Man and woman had perfect harmony in their relationship, and both of them walked and they talked with God. It was very good. There was no shame because there was no sin. And at this time, Adam and Eve. They had no arguing. They had no anger. They never felt the frustration of working hard, toiling hard, but not enjoying the fruit of their labor. They didn't have any clue what it would be like to not talk with God always, who was their creator. And they knew only his love for them, his care for them, his provision for them. They only knew his presence with them. They were at rest. sin. Sin brought strife in relationships and separation from God. Can you even imagine for a second the guilt, the blame, the anguish that both Adam and Eve suffered and endured when they sinned, and then all of a sudden life was filled with anxiety from the shame of what they'd done to the God who loved them? And then from then on, they had to work hard. Their relationship was going to be hard They even had a son who murdered his own brother. That was hard. Sin makes everything hard. And sin instituted restlessness 
but God's rest is eternal and it is holy. In Exodus 20, verse 8, it's God commands, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The Sabbath is the day of rest. His eternal rest begins the moment that one becomes a Christian, hence the word eternal. Ladies, salvation does a whole lot more than just keeping us out of hell. God blessed the rest, and he made it holy. Exodus 20, verse 11 says, Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath, and he made it holy. Now, what is holy? Holy is being separate or set apart. Spiritual rest requires holiness. And this is a really big, big problem for sinful people. Remember Adam and Eve? We were just talking about them. They were spiritually and physically removed from the garden. They were removed from God's presence because God is holy. And everything that is not holy is separated from him. But through the work of Jesus, we can now be separated to God, set apart from sin and counted as holy until we enter that eternal rest and we're truly holy. This, ladies, is when we will be just like Christ, holy and fully like Jesus. And this is what 1 Corinthians 13, 12 means when it says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Our spiritual rest right here, right now, is a sweet, sweet view into what is in store for every believer. Because eternal rest will be without sin. No anxiety, no strife in our work or in our relationships. No tears, no sadness. It will be very much like life in the garden before the fall. Humanity lost this rest when we fell away from God because of sin. And there is absolutely nothing that will bring rest back until man is back with God. And ladies, that can occur only in and by and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only then that we will experience eternity without any restlessness. True rest is being in the presence of God. This is the better rest that comes only through the supreme Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 8 in our chapter that we studied this week, it says this, if Joshua had given them this rest, God wouldn't have spoken of a day later on. Charles Spurgeon says that God's rest is the joy and the delight of the Christian. The whole of God's word is revealing of God's perfect rest and his plan to get his people back into his rest through Jesus's atoning work on the cross. Ladies, God's work, his, his rest is freedom. The spiritual rest that you receive from belief in Jesus Christ offers you freedom, freedom from whatever it is that worries you, that keeps you up at night and makes you fret. Now, we all know it isn't that God eradicates all of life's problems. We know that's not the case. But he does allow us to be free from the toll that they take on our minds and on our hearts and on our emotions. We've been freed from the bondage of sin and the penalty for sin. 
both of which rob people of rest. There's no guilt over sin because sin is forgiven. There's a freedom from the weight of believing that you or I could do anything, have any part at all in saving ourselves or in saving other people, our children, our spouses, our friends, our neighbors. We know that Jesus is the only one who can convict of sin and save souls. There's a freedom from that continual search for rest that the world does all the time. Because as Hebrews 6, 9 tells us, Jesus is our sure and steady anchor. Jesus has done it all. He completed the work and he declared it is finished in John 19, verse 36. Jesus declares that the Christian possesses a righteousness which perfectly and forever satisfies the law. And it's by Christ's own righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 and Romans 4.6-8 tell us that. And we love Galatians 2.16. It says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Of course, we all love Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works. None of us can boast. God's rest is our confidence, too, and it gives us confidence. Jesus has saved us. He has the power to both save us and to care for us. This rest is something we can rely on. We can trust it. From the day of our salvation all the way through eternity, Jesus will never leave us or forsake us, according to Deuteronomy 31.6. He will always support us. He will always hold us. When we're weak, he's our strength, 2 Corinthians 12.10 and Psalm 73.26. When we're sick, when we're afraid, he will comfort us, according to Psalm 56.3. And when we're hopeless, He's our hope, according to Psalm 146, verse 5. When we are not restless in the midst of this chaotic, evil, and restless world, ladies, it's a work of God, and it gives us confidence and assurance of his presence in our lives. God's rest is joyful. And God said this to Job in Job 38, 7, when at creation, all the sons of God shouted for joy. God's rest is satisfying. We saw that in Genesis 1 already. God's rest is a working rest. That seems a little contradictory, doesn't it? But it's a working rest, John 5, 17 tells us. Because God rested after creation, but ladies, he's always at work. Psalm 121.4 says, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. And us, we are created for good works. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The restful work of a believer is not toilsome, it's not fruitless, but it's a good work. It's a perfect work. God's rest is a finished work. 
We saw this, that God rested from his work at creation because it was complete. It was very good. And he was completely satisfied with it. And we see that because of Jesus's work on the cross, God is completely satisfied. This is why God's rest is freeing, joyful, and satisfying forever and ever. And all of these are the rests that are spoken of in Hebrews chapter 4. It's a full, blessed, sweet, satisfying, and peaceful rest. And this is what Canaan pointed to and what God offers to all who will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. True rest exists only in Jesus Christ by the gospel. And Jesus promised this, didn't he, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, when he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Is it any wonder that God warns us three times not to forfeit this rest? He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, because this is a very serious warning. You will fall short of your spiritual rest because you don't trust God. So strive to enter it. Because lack of trust creates a restlessness in our hearts. You also will fall short of eternal rest if you do not believe. Strive to enter it because unbelief is fatal. This next section has two verses that most of us are very, very familiar with. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably read them, quoted them. And this week, it was our memory verse. So you may have memorized this, these verses. Believers, especially here at our church, we hold God's word in very high esteem, don't we? We know that it is God's word to us, his very word. We believe, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, that says that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. But how does it apply to this passage about rest? Why did the Holy Spirit put it right here in this passage? We've been told, we know, to strive to enter God's rest. And now we're being told that God has given us his word to help us in our striving. Just curious, how many of you out there own a study Bible? Yeah, that's a lot of you. <laughs> that's a lot of you. And it can be helpful. A study Bible can be very helpful to have a, a reliable theologian right at your fingertips, right? As you diligently seek to know God better through the daily study of his word. In fact, I, I presume that that's why some of you are here today this, in this study, because you want to study God's word you want to know him better. You want to love him more and you want to be more like Jesus, right? So you study. These verses, Hebrews 4, verses 11 and 12, reveal yet another aspect of the word. And I really, really liked the way Austin Duncan describes these two verses. He says, we may think that we're studying God's word, but in reality, the word is studying us. So I'm going to read these verses, 12 and 13. 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and in the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Ladies, his word is a sword. It has two sides to it. It's a weapon used in judgment, and it's a tool to comfort us and to heal us. Jeremiah 23, 29 tells us just that. His word is alive. It gives life to those who believe it, and the life of God himself is discovered in it. Philippians 2, 16 tells us that. Ladies, every single word is breathed from God himself, according to 2 Corinthians 3.16. The word is eternal. God's word will never get old. It will never lie to us, and it will never die, according to Psalm 119, verse 160. The word is active. It never rests, and it's always at work. It is always effective in its work. Isaiah 55.11 promises us that. And its work is to reveal God to man and to transform anyone who believes it. It actively changes people. It's sharp. It cuts and it divides. It intends to kill off and to cut out sin. It cuts the soul and the spirit. It divides the joint and the marrow. It cuts to the thoughts and the intentions and it surgically removes those that are sinful. There's no part of us, ladies, that is not affected by God's word. Our spirit, our body, and our mind. It discerns. As it, may, as it is making those deep cuts in us, um, it discerns exactly what needs to be removed. It doesn't remove what doesn't need to be removed. The word goes straight for our deepest thoughts and our darkest intentions, and nothing can hide from it. You know, all of those secrets that we would never, ever reveal to another human being, God sees them. Even those we may not be aware of yet, according to Daniel 2.22, it reveals them to us. And we will stand bare before the Lord, and we will one day give an account. And it is placed right here in chapter 4, because God wants us to know that it is his word that will reveal what you believe, in what or in whom you place your trust, where you have placed your faith, and why or why not you are at rest because nothing is hidden from his sight. God's word is the final revealer of whether or whether or not one will enter into God's eternal rest. Ladies, there's an urgency to this message. So don't be like the Israelites, but be diligent. Be intent on always pursuing entering God's rest. It's a rest of grace, of comfort, of peace with God, and without it, people die. But when you enter into his rest, 
you enter into his spiritual rest. And when the Holy Spirit transforms you and resides in your heart, ladies, this isn't like the physical rest of the land of Canaan was set aside to be. It's a better rest. It's a rest for God's people in any era, in any nation, and under any circumstance or situation. It's a grace of God that his presence dwells in his children through his Holy Spirit, which enables us to seek him, to love him, and obey his word until the day that finally all believers will enter into his eternal rest. Hebrews 4 anticipates that great day when we are all done. We're all done with our toiling and we're all done with the efforts and we are then into the presence of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the rest that is spoken of in Revelation 14, verse 13. It says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Ladies, heed the warning and don't harden your hearts to this. It's time to make every effort or to strive to enter God's rest. And this requires belief, faith, and trust in God, as well as a striving to know God's word in such a way that it powerfully changes our hearts and it gives us rest. Today is the day because it's a better rest. It's a heart rest, which relies not on our work, but upon Jesus's finished work because it is the presence of God himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for loving us enough to send your son that you might bring us into your rest. Oh, Lord, I pray that we will give to you those things that are keeping us from your rest, those things that we're not trusting you with. And I pray especially for those women who may be here this morning and have not yet received your Holy Spirit. They have not entered your spiritual rest at all. Lord, they're disobedient. Give them the ability to come into your rest this day. Today is the day. Lord, I pray for these women. In Jesus' name, amen.